0: You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso, Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. So we have been in the book of James, and as we come into this section, we're going to be moving into chapter 4, but I'm going, to, I'm, not, I'm going to throw it out there right away. I'm going to hit a little bit of last week's, just one verse before we jump into it. But as I was looking at it, I really wanted to kind of put in perspective where we are. I wanna put in perspective what James is trying to say. And I wanna I wanna talk about the end of the life of Jesus Christ. Was that last you know day before he's gonna go? He is going to go to the cross, he's gonna die for our sins, he's gonna lay down his life so we could have life, he's gonna become our substitution for anyone that would call on him and believe in him. And he's talking with his disciples. And he's having this conversation with them. He kind of, they're talking about a bunch of different things. And then all of a sudden, he shifts and he starts praying. He looks up to heaven and he starts praying. Now, that section of scripture, if you know your Bible, is called the high priestly prayer. That's when he starts talking with God. It's one of his longest prayers that we have written down in the Bible as he's praying to God. And so, as he's talking with God, he's preparing for himself for what's about to happen. As he's about to take the sins of the world, place those on his shoulder, die so we could have peace with God, he's kind of talking through that. And he's recalling all the things that he's done at that point in his ministry. And as he's doing that, he's telling God, I have fulfilled everything, everything that you asked me to do. I have done all of it. And then he gets down a little bit into the prayer and he shifts gears And he actually moves into this place where he stops praying about him and what he's done, and he starts praying for us. And he makes this really profound shift in in what's going on. He's he's praying about how we would live. When I say we, I mean brothers and sisters in Christ, those that proclaim Christ as their Savior. And he says, I want to pray for them, how they live, what they look like how they treat each other. And so I wanted to start this morning in that section. I want to go to John 17. I'm going to pick it up in... I'm actually going to pick it up in 18, so it's going to look a little weird for a second. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask these That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It's an interesting section of Scripture. As Jesus is there, he's praying for our unity. He's he's praying that we would be one, that our relationship would be similar to the relationship that Jesus has with the Father, that they are perfectly connected, they are complete in unity in everything that they do, and he prays for our oneness, our unity. When I say our, I'm talking about us right here in this room, that we would have that same kind of unity, that we would reflect the Father and the Son and the relationship that he has. What he's saying is that we would love each other, and that as we love each other, we would be a light to the world around us, the same way that Jesus was a light to the world because he was one with the Father. Now, it's interesting. He says that they would be perfectly one. Now, this shouldn't be a hard question. Do you know what word that is when he says perfectly there? It's teleos. It's the word that we have been using over and over again in this study of the book of James. He's saying that you would be perfect, you would be one, you would be whole, you would be complete in how you interact with each other, the same way that God and I are. It's so important how we interact as Christians. And I would say it's more important than you even realize Because you start asking this question, out of all the things that Jesus could have been praying for just before he dies, he is literally praying for his people, his followers, the church to be unified in one in everything that we do. To say that it's important to God is a vast understatement. See, our love for each other is paramount and it marks us in who we are in this world. With that big idea in the front of our minds, I want to read James 3, 18 through 412. <clears throat> Starting in 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose... but who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into this section. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this week. You have a word for your people, and I can't wait to see how it lands in the hearts of the men and women that are here today. Lord, where we are in broken community, where we, are, where we don't have teleos in our community, Lord, I ask that you would fix those fractures and those breaks in relationship. Lord, where we are self-absorbed with ourselves, I ask that we would lay that down at the foot of the cross. I ask that this church would be a reflection of who you are, Jesus, with your Father, and that it would be a light to those that come, that they would see the love of God, the love of His people. We love you. We pray all these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So unity over self. Evil passions kill community. Now, James ended last week, and he paints this really great picture of Christian unity and what that looks like, that we'd be sowing peace, living in unity, planting seeds of peace through that in the community of believers. And it would produce this thing called righteousness, that we would be right with God, living in a right standing with God, and that there would be this huge harvest that would multiply and spread everywhere that it goes. But he's going to shift gears really quick when he hits chapter 4, and he's going to ask a question to these men and women. But because we are the church also, he's also asking us that question. Now, it says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Um, Apparently, there was some kind of fighting that was happening in the early church. Now, it wasn't so early at this point anymore, but there was fighting and backstabbing, and people were being selfish, and they weren't caring for each other. Now, remember what it looked like before. It had moved away from what we read in the book of Acts. I think we started that last year. We talked about that. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, this is what the church looked like when it was birthed, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is the picture that we have of the early church. Something's changed. Something has shifted gears. It's been about 10 years at this point since that passage to where we are with James now, and there's fighting, and there's division, and there's selfishness, and there's greed that's starting to happen. Now, James could have easily gotten into all the specifics, but he doesn't do that, does he? He kind of leaves it sort of like vague out there. He's like, I'm not going to address all the things. Sometimes we see that. Paul's been known today. He calls people out, says they've done these these things that are wrong, but James isn't doing that. And I think it's because James is not as concerned about that as much as he is about the heart of where those things are coming from. And he's, we talked about it last, last week, the idea of the root and the fruit. He's concerned about the root of what's the real problem here. And so he asks this question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? But he gives the answer right away. It's a rhetorical question. Like, I don't need you to answer. I'm just going to tell you the actual answer. And he says, is it not the passions that are warring against you? Isn't your old life trying to take the driver's seat? Isn't your old life trying to get back on the throne of your heart to be in control like it always is? This this bitter jealousy and this selfish ambition that drive you, we talked about that last week. So the the way the Bible would define passions is this. It's a desire, a feeling, the feeling that accompanies an unsatisfied state. I love that definition. It's a great definition because I think in general, we're an unsatisfied group of individuals in society, aren't we? Nothing is good enough. We always want the next thing, the, the shinier thing, the newer thing, the more expensive thing, the harder thing to get. We want that thing. We're unsatisfied. And I love what he's saying within this. It's like these desires, you're saying that there is something that you're missing, that there's something more to your life that you need, something more than what Jesus did on the cross. And so you're looking elsewhere for these things in your life. Anything that is going to take your focus off of Christ and serving others and it points on yourself, that's destructive. That's going to be a problem in how community functions. And it starts to spiral really quick. You want and you do not have. So it says that you murder and that you covet. Now, there's a couple of commentaries that are like, well, maybe they were killing each other. I'm like, no, I don't buy it. The, The stuff that I'm doing, I'm not seeing that. But what I am seeing is something that Jesus spoke about, actually. And let's take a look at that in... Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there are... He's saying, if you have these thoughts in your mind that are angry and bitter and that are self-absorbed, then that's the same as murdering him. He's saying, and I love the context. What is Jesus talking about? There is a brokenness in community. If you are going to worship God and you find that you have something wrong with the community that you're in, you need to stop. Do not continue to worship. Go seek that person out. Why? So reconciliation will take place. So unity will belong in the believers so that we can worship with teleos perfectly. How can we worship if we are angry and against our brothers and sisters in Christ? How can we do that? Jesus is calling them to this. Come back to community before you worship. The second point is praying selfish prayers. Praying selfishly kills unity. He then moves to the fact that The things that they want, they don't have. Why? Because they don't ask. Meaning you aren't praying to God about the desires of your heart. You're trying to do it in your own power. You're trying to receive the things that you want in your own way, which usually is an ungodly way to get the things that we desire. We cut corners, we sin, we treat, we steal, we do whatever we can to get what we want. He said, you need to be going to God if you want to do that. And instead of going to God, what you're doing is... Is you're actually killing community. See, selfishness kills community because it takes everybody else out of the equation, doesn't it? Because it's all about you and me. That's what it's about. It's about me. I want what I want, so I no longer care about the community. Think about this. Everyone who's ever lived has experienced the selflessness of community. Everyone. You know, I know because you were all born and someone had to raise you and they sacrificed time and money and sleep and their wits and everything else they can imagine for the first 18 years of your life. So you could exist like, well, not really. It's true. Every single one of us has experienced that kind of selflessness. We've experienced what God would say he wants for his people. But he continues, he's like, you're still not getting what you want as you do pray because you're asking the wrong way. What does he mean? What is he saying? He's saying you're trying to use God as a waiter, that he would just wait on you hand and foot. You're treating God like a genie wanting to get your three wishes. And I thought about that. My mind went to a movie that I really like. And I, I do some movie quotes sometimes, but the reality is, this. I love the movie Aladdin, and you can judge me all up and down at this point, it's a cartoon, it's for children, there's singing and dancing, I love that movie, and I, and I thought this week, why do I love the movie Aladdin so much? <laughs> I love show tunes, I don't know, that's not Why? But I love the movie Aladdin. I mean, yes, there's, you know, Robin Williams is in it and the songs are clever and it's got all these cultural references, but that's not really why I like it. At the end of what you see is that it's about a guy who has the ability to make some wishes. And like most people, we'd say, I get my three wishes and I'm gonna get all of them for me, 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 me. It's going to self-promote who I am and as a person. But then there's this thing at the end where Aladdin, you're like, you're gonna spoil the movie. If you have not watched it, I am not liable for the fact that you don't know this movie. And uh, shame on all of you. I'll just say that right now. But Aladdin, he, he, becomes, he wants to be the prince, and then he's not the prince, but he's got one wish left, and he can have, his, he can have Jasmine, he can, have the, he can be married to her because of the law, and he's all excited, and he says no. And he does something selfless. Even though the wish to free the genie would cause him his ability to be happy, to be with the woman that he loves, to have all the prosperity he could possibly imagine. He does something self-sacrificial and he says, No, for the greater good of one who is in bondage, for the greater good of one who is enslaved, I'm going to give of myself so he can have freedom. That's a powerful moment. It's the gospel is what it is. And I never put it together until this week. Like He's doing something so amazing. He's, he's sacrificing himself for the greater good of others. And that's what Jesus did for us. That Jesus came and laid down his life. He did not come to be served, but to serve. To lay down his life for many to be a ransom for those that they would call on the name of the Lord and be saved to him. That's what he's doing But my question is, do you think that God is just here to serve you and give you whatever you want? Is that how you think of God? Do you think of God as a genie or a waiter? Is is God all about you or is He about Himself? See, prayer is less about what you can get from God and more about aligning your life with God's promises. Let me say that again. Prayer is less about what you can get from God and more about aligning your life with God's promises and priorities. See, God is about restoring relationship and creating His family and serving others. That's what He came to do. That's what we saw when God incarnate came down as Jesus Christ to die for us. That's what He did. That's what he's about. When you pray, let me ask this question. Are you open to hearing that the thing that you may want is absolutely the worst thing in the world for you? Are you open to that? You're like, I've never thought that ever because I'm always right. Of course, what I want is best for me. Have you ever, do you go into prayer wondering, God, is this even good for me? Are the things that I'm praying for, the desires that I have, does it, is it going to benefit me or others? Is it, is it glorify you in any way? Like, have you asked that? Do you humbly realize your need for God and His will in your life? Like, His will for your life is better than anything that you would ever want. Anything. Do you you want to see the world the way that God sees the world? Do you want to see a world that's broken and hurting and lost and in desperate need of hope? That's in desperate need of a Savior? Do you want to see the world that way or do you just want to get your shiny thing? And honestly, it could actually be good things you're praying for, but you're making them more important than God, and they're becoming the desires that you think are better than Jesus Christ himself. That's the problem. The third point is godly jealousy. Love of the world kills unity. So he makes this really aggressive statement. So James has been like, brother, 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 family, family, family. And then he says... You adulterous people. That's a hard shift. I don't know where you... like. That's just a hard shift. Like, whoa, hey, hey, we were all huggy family here. Like, what just happened? Now, he says this term because it would hearken back to the Old Testament prophets. Now, remember, who is he talking to? Jewish men and women. They understood the law. They understood the prophets. They knew what he was saying. So when you look at different... um, uh, Prophets that spoke this way: Jeremiah two twenty, Jeremiah three six through sixteen. Uh, one of my favorites: Hosea one two. They would have caught this. This wouldn't have been lost on them. As James is speaking now, the word that James uses is really, really interesting. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you break down how it's originally said in the original language. So he calls them adulterous, but it's that's it's different. The way the word is being referenced, it's to a female cheating. So it's the feminine version of the word adulteress. So it's the female version. Like, now that's weird. Why wouldn't he use a gender neutral term to say that? Because he's talking to men and women, right? Why in the world would he use this feminine term of a female adulteress when he's talking to God's people? It, it seems weird. Well, here's why. Because Jesus would always refer to himself as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. When God thinks about his relationship with you, the church, this is, again, it's not a building. It's a group of people. He always sees it as a marriage. It's hard to understand the the magnitude of what he's saying when he's talking about the covenant of marriage, because let's be honest, we've made very little of it in our society, haven't we? Easy in, easy out, whatever I got to do, if it doesn't meet my needs, I can bail. There's a lot of that that goes on. It's the strongest bond and commitment that we see in the Bible is this covenant Like, when's the last time you've been to a wedding? What do they say? For richer, for poorer, for sickness and health, good times and bad, till death do us part, right? It's like, it's, it's not the, well, until you don't meet my needs, until I fall out of love. No, it's like, I'm in. I'm all in no matter what. And I'm not going anywhere. And that's something that we don't hear in this world anymore, that I'm in no matter what. Even when you turn your back. Read the first four chapters of Hosea. And look at how God views his relationship with his people. How he pursues his wife to show how God pursues his people, even when they turn their back on him. And what we see is that God is always the one who upholds the covenant. Always. I think we need to hear that there is a God that loves us. He's not walking away on you. He's not walking out on you. He's not giving up on you. That's not the God that we serve. If you are looking to the world for your definition of a covenant, you are going to be very confused when you read God's word. And this is why he would call the Israelites adulterous people, because they were cheating on God. Who's he cheating on? It says, you're cheating on God with the world. Now, make sure you understand what I'm saying. He's not saying, don't be around people that are in the world. That's not what he's saying, okay? So you're like, "I I have a friend who's not a Christian. Oh, no, I'm cheating on God. No, that's not what we're saying. He's talking about the values of the world, what the world calls good, right, and perfect. What the world says you need to do for yourself. The world's values are different than God's, and, and, and I think there's something to understand that God does not share His bride with anybody. I'm going to go ahead and make a really bold statement. I'm not sharing my wife with anybody. You're like, wow, it's crazy. The fact that you would need to say that in the world is insane. But there are people like, it's okay. Open relationships are the greatest thing in the world. It's so healthy for a relationship. Oh, you don't have to be jealous. No, it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because God says it's wrong. That's why it's wrong. There will be jealousy. There will be hurt feelings. People will feel uncared for. I don't care what you say. I don't care what the Instagram posts look like. That's not true. It's a lie. It's a lie. He would go as far to say as if you are friends with the world and the way the world thinks, the way the world acts, and what the world values. Let's put it this way. Even if you're dating the world, well, I'm not like... I'm just flirting with the world. I would not be okay if someone was flirting with my wife. My wife would not be okay if I was flirting with somebody else, it's okay. I'm just flirting with her." No, that's going to have a problem. And as God is talking about how we view that, He's saying that is wrong. As a matter of fact, that makes you an enemy of God. You think if I'm flirting with another woman in my relationship, my wife's going to be like, oh, everything's hunky-dory. No, no, it's not. There's going to be a problem and a lot of conversations then he says that God is jealous. Now, you might be a Simon. Now, last week we talked about jealousy and you said jealousy was bad. So is God sinning? No. And here's, I'm going to explain what's going on here. He's actually using a different word. So the word that he used last week with bitter jealousy is a different word than he actually uses, completely different word when it's talking about the jealousy of God. So every time we see it talk about us, it's a negative connotation. It's not a positive thing. It's a negative thing. It's, it's done wrong. It's done poorly. It's filtered through a broken, sinful heart and, and, and those actions. But when it's here, what we see, it says jealousy, righteousness, and appropriate desire for what a person has a right to. It's an appropriate desire because that person has a right to it. It's okay for me to have a jealousy if my wife was to go and look elsewhere because we made a covenant together. She is mine. I am hers. We're one. God made us. Our lives are meant to be a life that is to worship. Do you understand that? We have been designed to worship. Every problem we have in the world is a worship problem. And God said, you need to worship me. And you're worshiping all the wrong things, which is why your life is going sideways all the time. We were designed and meant to worship God, and when we look elsewhere with these other desires, we create this problem that we're living outside of our natural design for how God has made us to be. So he's saying every time that you go for something else, it's harmful for us. It's bad for us. See, the world is about self-glorification and its own independence, God is about His glory because He is the only one who rightfully deserves that glory because He is perfect in every single way. He is about connecting people to Him, the source of real life. Humility is the key. Humility saves community. Um, you ever think about the word thank you? Thank you is a weird word. We say it all the time. I want to thank you. I want to give you thanks. Do you know what we're saying when we say thank you? I am in debt to you in some way, and I am acknowledging you. I'm acknowledging what you have done for me, and I appreciate you. Do you realize that's what you're saying? You know what we like to say? You're welcome. Do you know why we like to say you're welcome? I I hate to ask for help. it it drives me up the wall. And I'm a sinner and I know I'm working through it. Why? Because it means that I can't do whatever it is I'm trying to do. Asking for help means I don't have the ability in my own power to accomplish whatever goal I've set before me. And so therefore, it shows that I'm broken, it shows that I'm deficient, it shows that I'm unable, it highlights my inadequacies, And then I have to go to somebody else and ask them for something, showing them that I have something that I can't do and I need your help to accomplish that very thing. See, saying you're welcome is so much better means I'm the one that has all the answers and I'm the one who can do all the things and you're coming to me because, well, let's be honest, I'm pretty amazing and you need my help. You're welcome. The heart of the gospel is admitting that you can't save yourself and that you need God to help you. I got into this mess, and I can't get myself out of it. I have sin, and I don't know how to deal with it. I have separation from the Father, and I don't know how to be connected to it. Augustine said this, It was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. Not meaning that we become angels. That's not what it's saying, but that we get to be close to God is what he's saying. See, pride is the great community destroyer. Pride is a part of this, this fighting and this quarreling. It's this pride that just moves in. It tore everything apart in the garden. And I say, you're like, you talk about the garden all the time. Yeah, I do. Because it's important for us to know what took place in the garden. That they weren't just eating fruit. They were saying, I don't need you, God. I want to be my own God. I want to be in charge. I want to be the one that's worshiped. I want to be the one that's lifted up. I want to be the important one. That's what they're saying. I don't care what you'd say. I want it my way. Pride says, I can. Humility says, you can. We need to get to that place. We cannot experience the grace and the mercy of God until we come to a place of humility. Can't. Community starts with humility to God, and as that vertical relationship grows between us and God, it spreads to our horizontal relationships. It's always flowing out of us. And and when we get to do that, God just continues to pour an unlimited amount of grace upon us for all that would call on Him for help, for salvation, for a new life, to take off the old self, to love people when they are unlovely. Like, well, I struggle with that. Yeah, that's what Jesus did for us. He laid down His life for people that were unlovely. He was dying for those that were literally nailing him to a cross where he hung. Forgive them, they do not know what they do. He was dying for them in that moment. Tim Keller says this, The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Do you see the tension of what's being said there, it's not that I think I'm great. And it's not that I think I'm horrible because like b- both are talking, it all revolves around you, right? I'm amazing. I'm amazing. It's all about me. Oh, my life's so bad. My... It's still all about you, isn't it? But there's this moment where you are freed to be who you are when you are in Christ. And we just think less of ourselves. One of the things when I meet with people and they're going through a lot of hard stuff, I just say, okay, where are you serving right now? What what, what do you mean? Like, don't you mean who's serving me right now? No, I mean, where are you serving right now? How are you serving others? And you know what's funny? When people start to serve others, they take the focus off of themselves and they can actually move through that pain and that hurt more effectively when they're serving others. It's amazing. As we think less about ourselves, we are actually free to think about others and to serve them. Not to look good, not to gain anything, but to love them the way that the Father has loved us. He says, submit to God and the devil will flee from you. He'll take away your old desires for yourself and give the desires that reflect him and that love to others. And he tells us the solution. The solution is really clear. It says, draw near to God. Turn to God. Turn away from the world. Here's the thing. Like, we can't go both ways. God is this way, the world is this way. You you physically can't go in two directions. You're going to walk towards something. He's like, you got to pick something. That's why he says, you're either, if you go towards the world, you turn your back on God. You turn to God, you turn your back on the world. And that's the picture he's trying to paint. That's why he's saying, you can't be friends with that because you're not moving. He says, as you move towards God, as you draw near to God, he says what? God draws near to you. He draws. Do you have? You realize you have a God that's drawing near to you. The first step is humility. It's the admitting that I need Jesus Christ. I need a Savior. I can't save myself. And as soon as you do that, God draws near to you. He wants you to draw near and and reading His Word, that you would know His Word, that you would know who He is. That we would pray to Him to know Him more, to live a life that exemplifies Him in all that we do, that we would meditate on His Word, that we would wash over us. Quick, slow, slow. That's what He's saying. He says, as you do that, the devil will flee from you. I have seen sin in my life and addiction in my life that God has taken away the desires and the thoughts in my life completely that I never thought I'd have freedom from is as I drew near to God, that He changed my heart. That that DNA that He's given me is overflowing in my life. You can have the freedom that you're looking for in your life. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. He will transform you. Turn from your old ways and let God cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He calls them, repent, repent of this way of acting, repent of being outside of community, repent of causing division. You have to. And then he says this weird phrase that doesn't make a lot of sense. You need to start mourning and weeping and stop laughing and be, aren't we supposed to be joyful as like Christians? Isn't that like who we're supposed to be? What's he saying? If you understand what he's saying, it makes sense. He's saying you are taking joy in your sin. You are laughing and enjoying the fact that you are selfish and that you're all about yourself. And he's saying what you need to have is a contrite heart, a broken heart for the fact that you have been so far from God and you are living so opposite of what the gospel looks like in your life, that you would reject that, see that you are broken, turn to God with a broken heart and repent of your sins. That's what he's saying. And he says, as you humble yourself before the Lord, He will lift you up. He will lift you out of your mess and your sickness. And He will seat you in the high place with Him forever. The last part is <clears throat> the royal law. Living for others is the picture of Jesus. James is going to end where he started at the beginning of the chapter of how we speak and treat others that's really has been building out from chapter three on do not speak evil against one another because when you do you're speaking against the very thing that jesus told us so that law what's the law that james is speaking about he told us he told us in chapter 2 verse 8 you shall love your neighbor as yourself right When we start to live in contradiction to who Jesus is, how are we representing? Him? How are we loving Him? Let me ask you a question Do you know what defeated sin? Do you know what took care of the separation between man and God? Do you know what conquered death? Do you know what creates community? It's love. It's love that conquered sin. And it's love that conquered death. That there is a God who loves you so much that He was willing to go to the ends of the earth and give His very best so He could be reconnected with you. That all this sin in this world, all this rebellion, because a loving Father loved His people. Like, love brought us back into community. Love defeated death. Love brings life. And love is what marks the Christian. It's who we are. This fighting and and quarrel is antithetical to the Christian life, to one who's been saved, for one who believes that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. We are made to love each other because it's a reflection of the great love that the Father has actually shown us. That's why James is contending and fighting so aggressively. You can't live this way. You're not showing the gospel to one another. And that's what what it means when you say you got to show the gospel to others. What does that mean? That we would love others the way that Jesus loved us. And it starts with our family. And it moves out into the world around us. People are desperate for this kind of love. And yet we find that we argue and we bicker in the churches. You know what I've come to find most of the time? The fighting and the bickering is usually not theological stuff. It's preferences. I want music this way. I want the lights that way. I want the pews. I want the chairs. I want it loud. I want it quiet. I'm well, haven't I offended yet? I'm, still, I'm trying to figure it out. I, I, I. Do you see where it's coming from? lay down your preferences for the body of Christ we would represent Jesus more effectively Jesus is now in us so we can now bring that love to each other and the world around us who needs to hear, taste, feel and see the love of God through his people that are filled by him I wanna finish with this one passage. It's 1 Corinthians 13. It's used at every single wedding, always, for some reason. And um, it's great, it's wonderful. It's just talking about something different than usually is happening at weddings. And so it's 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. Paul is speaking to a jacked up church. He's, He's speaking to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were all over the place. There was a lot of problems there. They were out of unity, they were fighting, they were quarreling. Paul's saying the same thing that James is saying, but listen to what he's saying. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, what Paul is contending for is the same thing that James is contending for, which is the same thing that Jesus was praying for at the high priestly prayer, that we would have unity, that we would be connected together by the blood of Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, My question is this, where do you need to repent today? Where do you need to show the love of the Father to someone at our church, someone outside of our church? Where do you need to put aside your selfish desires? Where do you need to turn to God? Where do you need to draw near to God? Are you being divisive in the church? Have you created fractures and removed teleos from community? Today is the day where you can repent and turn from that. Let's pray.